The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Refining Biomarker Testing and Targeted Treatment of NSCLC with Common and Uncommon EGFR Mutations. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RJV 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good morning. We want to welcome everyone this morning, both in the audience and our online audience. Today is a hybrid event. We want to welcome you to uh, this morning's session on refining biomarker testing and targeted treatment in patients with common and uncommon EGFR mutant lung cancer. So today, my name is Natasha Lale. I'm from the Princess Margaret Cancer Center, and I'm honored to be joined by two very bright lights in, uh, in lung cancer drug development, uh, Dr. Zosha Petrovska, who's Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and uh, Assistant in Medicine at the Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Catherine Shu, who's Associate Professor of Medicine and Clinical Director of Thoracic Medical Oncology at Columbia University Medical Center in New York. So we're going to talk a bit about gaps and opportunities, refining testing, first finding the target, treating with precision, and the current state of the art in EGFR-targeted therapy options, and then finally uh, how to incorporate this into our practice with some cases and uh, discussion. So I'm going to start by talking a bit about the gaps. So, you know, I think it it feels as though every week there's a new targetable alteration in lung cancer and a whole new host of exciting drugs to target that new alteration and two or three times a year uh, an FDA drug approval, which is incredibly exciting and such a change from when I started in lung cancer 20 years ago. But you can see here there are now nine genes of interest and even within those genes, for example, EGFR, Uh, you know, very clear streams of common sensitizing and less common mutations, and we're going to talk more about that area today, and that's certainly still the most common type of lung cancer. So today, the standard of care is broad-spectrum NGS testing and PD-L1 testing, especially in our patients with non-squamous, non-small cell lung cancer, but we're still not doing a great job. Uh, These are some data from the MyLung Consortium. They're about a year or two old now. But although most patients get at least one test, fewer than half of patients get all of the tests that were relevant at the time. At that time, only five tests, easier for ALK, ROS1, BRAF, and PDL1. And over time, we're certainly getting better. These are some data presented at ASCO last year, looking at a large cohort of predominantly community-based practices, where we're now testing up to about 60% of patients with NGS, with non-small cell lung cancer, but that means that a third of our patients are still being left behind. And another growing trend that I think is, is I think, disturbing to all of us, and we're grappling on how to address this, we are seeing growing disparities between the patients that get access to NGS and patients that don't, with some very clear differences between patients that are white and black and also of different ethnicities. So NGS has really been an amazing advance for us, especially moving on from PCR-based testing, which many of us had been using up until about five or 10 years ago. 
And this is a, a great example. Um, for example, for EGFR, PCR-based testing might pick up about five exon 20 insertion variants, but probably only detects about half of the wealth and complexity of the variants that are out there and only identifies about half of the patients that could benefit from exon 20 inhibitors. So again, this understanding that NGS may add not only the breadth of detection and be able to detect more variants, but may in many cases also be more sensitive. We have sometimes seen where a PCR test failed and an NGS test succeeded at finding a common mutation. So I'm gonna start with a case. I think you've seen many of these patients over COVID. This is a 54-year-old lady, a non-smoker, presented with a cough. Initially, uh, it was thought to have COVID, uh, then was thought to have allergies or asthma. And unfortunately, this went on for a little while until she had an X-ray that showed a nodule. When she was worked up, and we often do see this in our younger patients, by the time they get diagnosed, she had widespread disease, a lung nodule, and liver metastases, TTF1 positive, lung adenocarcinoma, PDL1 expression 50%, and no driver alterations on the testing that she'd had at the time. Minimal symptoms, she's performance status zero, but very anxious and eager to start treatment. Her primary oncologist offered her single agent immunotherapy with a checkpoint inhibitor, and she's come to you to ask what to do. This is her molecular uh, status, PDL1 uh, expression 50%, wild type EGFR, BRAF, and KRAS by PCR, and by FISH, wild type ALK and ROS1. So, you know, I think it is a real challenge, especially here in the US. I think there's this real pull between establishing reflex testing, where the pathologist does the testing, versus the patient coming to see you several weeks after their diagnosis, and you have to initiate the testing. And of course, time is always such a crunch. And so I, I always consider getting the best possible molecular results a real tug of war between how much tissue you have, how much time you have, and who's going to pay for what, what's covered. And so, you know, in Canada and uh, many other countries, we have pathologist-initiated testing, which is great because, you know, as soon as they make that diagnosis, they send off the panel that we want. Um, more people do get tested and are able to have successful testing. By the time they get to you, ideally, the test results would be there. But of course, you know, they might test multiple samples unknowingly. They might test someone with very early stage. And so, you know, it's not quite as targeted um, as, as one might want. They're also really the curators of the sample. And, you know, I think back in the old days that the techs used to cut 20 or 30 slides off the top of the block, and then there wouldn't be enough for EGFR testing. Whereas now, if the pathologist can initiate the testing, they can do two or three IHC slides and then just go ahead and process the rest for NGS. So I think it really does help with the best specimen selection. On the other side, you know, sometimes we don't have a choice. We are the ones, and we're often the ones that know what we need, what to prioritize, and uh, how quickly we need these samples. And these are some data we presented at ESMO on the right. Uh, what we did was we looked at, you know, our single gene testing at the top, where we could get results in about a week, versus more comprehensive testing, and now we're out at about four weeks, which really means our pathologists have to do it, because we just can't wait that long from the clinic. And so even though we go from, you know, 40% actionable alterations to 60% actionable alterations, we need to do much more to make NGS faster. Newer technology now, where you're able to get results within one to two weeks, and of course, getting that annotation time and everything else down are all challenges. And I think the, you know, the reason why this is so important is that we know that at least a third of patients in the U.S., maybe more outside the U.S., start non-targeted therapy without molecular results. They might have an EGFR result come back, as Dr. Petrowska mentioned. And then, you know, what do we do if they've been on chemoimmuno? We worry about pneumonitis and hepatitis and other things. So, so important to, to 
to go beyond PDL1. Liquid biopsy, as Dr. Shu mentioned, has really become a, an invaluable tool, certainly in my clinic. And of course, you know, tissue is essential. Makes the diagnosis, you get PDL1, but it's hard to repeat multiple times in our patients, as you'll hear, whereas plasma has that ability that you can, you know, withdraw the DNA. Um, isolated in the RNA and process it. Sometimes turnaround time is faster, although in theory it should be the same, and it's much easier to repeat over time. You also don't have to worry about which sample you biopsy. It's a much more complete picture of the patient's heterogeneity, but the big drawback of plasma is that we probably miss uh, about 20% of cases because there's just not enough circulating tumor DNA shed into the circulation. So just because a plasma test is negative, doesn't mean that the alteration's not there. So really important to have tissue as a fallback. And based on the ISLC guidelines, currently we use this sequentially. So when tissue fails, we can really rescue a lot of patients. Complementary, I think many centers are starting to do that where it can be covered. I heard that uh, some colleagues send tissue to one vendor and plasma to another vendor to get them both covered as a way <laughs> to make this work. Um, but in Canada, we actually published a study where we showed that the impact of this was actually cost-neutral to cost savings because people that could go on targeted therapy actually didn't have ineffective, expensive mm -hmm. immunotherapy. And so we actually saved money in the True. Canadian system. Now we just have to get them to pay for it. <laughs> plasma first is becoming a very interesting approach. Of course, it's not plasma only. You still need tissue. Um, but both Sharu Agarwal and Sanjay Papat, and now more recently our group, have shown that if you do liquid biopsy, either at the time of the tissue biopsy, or in our case, a couple of weeks in advance when we're getting the patient in the queue, we actually save a lot of time getting molecular results. We cut the time in treatment uh, by 50 to 75%, and we get more patients on targeted therapy. So I think you will see more, uh, more data on plasma first. And finally, later on today with Dr. Shu, we're going to talk about the relevance of plasma in resistance. So currently, as, as I said before, the current standard is broad-spectrum NGS as well as PDL one and this is very, very tiny font, but you know, we've learned that with comprehensive NGS, you can look at multiple genes and multiple alterations, and it's really great for all of that complexity in one assay. PCR is often more focused, for example, EGFR variants only, or EGFR KRAS, for example. Um, it can be faster, you need less DNA, it can be less expensive, but you do miss things. And so, you know, our particular patient, you probably can't see in this tiny font, but look at this huge array of EGFR alterations that are out there, insertions, duplications. Um, she actually has an exon 20 insertion which we finally picked up with NGS, which made her a candidate for other treatments. Um, so we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but certainly biomarker testing is needed to optimize first-line therapy and includes these alterations shown here. The type of testing matters, NGS, RNA better for fusions versus DNA, so so important to know what you're getting in your clinic. And interpreting what you get is also important. Um, EGFR positive isn't enough. You know, this lady in clinic, everybody was so excited she was EGFR positive, but it doesn't necessarily mean osimertinib, so you've really got to delve through all the details and be very granular. So I'm going to go ahead with this next case. This is a 62-year-old male, a light smoker, had a right upper lobectomy for a stage 2A lung cancer and adjuvant chemotherapy, but sadly, at one year, developed bilateral lung nodules, had a biopsy, PDL1 negative, and plasma testing showed an EGFR mutation, and tissue NGS showed the same. 
So these are the alterations. You can see a high level of an ATM variant, an EGFR exon 20 insertion shown there, uh, GNAS alteration, and then some variants of unknown significance in STK11 and FGFR. So <laughs> what would you offer this patient? Please go ahead and vote. Would you offer him osimertinib, platinum chemotherapy? It's been a year now since his adjuvant th therapy. Amivantamab, mobocertinib, or still too early, not voting yet. So some people would just start opsomertinib, and Dr. Petroska is going to talk to us a bit more about that. Platinum chemotherapy, it has been a year out. You know, I think that would certainly be discussed, or some of these very exciting exon 20 insertion inhibitors, and we'll also maybe discuss a bit about which one you would pick and when. What would you do? <laughs> Um, so in this case, you know, it's a newly diagnosed kind of metastat new metastatic presentation of exon 20 insertion positive cancer. So in the U.S. currently, amivantamab and mobocertinib, as we'll talk about, are exciting and have, have exciting data, but they're approved only in the post-chemotherapy setting. So I think, you know, this is an interesting case because how do you consider the chemotherapy? Do you consider the fact that this patient had chemotherapy within the past year? kind of their chemo, eligible, their, their, their chemo treatment and make them eligible, I think it would be, you know, worth considering actually maybe moving straight to amivantamab or mobocertinib and saying the patient just had chemotherapy. Or depending on their tolerance, you know, you could go back to platinum doublet. It's been a year. I think it's reasonable to rechallenge. But in this case, I'd be tempted to maybe go straight to one of the Exxon 20 drugs given that treatment history. Great. Dr. Shu. I think I'm on the number three as well. I, I think I'd be tempted to forego the chemo for now and try um, amivantamab or mobocertinib. Um, if they were newly diagnosed with metastatic disease, um, having not gotten adjuvant chemo before, I would probably put them on a clinical trial. We have a trial Papillon looking at chemo plus ami versus chemo. So I think that would also be an option. And I guess one additional point to make here is that, you know, if this was a newly diagnosed patient without that adjuvant chemotherapy treatment history, one of the questions that comes up a lot in clinic is, do we give these patients chemotherapy alone, or should they be treated with a combination of chemotherapy with the checkpoint inhibitor? You know, I think we have relatively limited data to guide us here on that question. My own bias extrapolating from the more common EGFR mutations where we think the benefit of checkpoint inhibitors is lower. And again, we always have that concern in the back of our minds that giving a checkpoint inhibitor followed by especially a TKI-based therapy could expose patients to potentially increased toxicity. In my own practice, I, I tend for those patients to do chemotherapy alone and, and omit yep. the checkpoint inhibitor. I don't know yep. what you're... And I do as well. Sounds yeah. good. And I think in Europe, some people use bevacizumab as well, yeah. but I agree, tend to shy away from that. So just to sum up, uh, you know, we have these exciting new drugs. Dr. Petroska is going to talk to us about that. And it's so important to remember that NGS is important to really leave no patient behind and maximize the detection rates. Um, some targeted panels will cover some of all some of the EGFR mutations we want, but not the full spectrum. And uh, I also think EGFR is getting much more complex. You know, when you go through and you read these reports, even T790M is sometimes hard to pick out in there. So, so really important to make sure that you have close ties with your lab and the people that do your annotation or something like OncoKB where you can always make sure that you know what you're dealing with. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Petroska to talk to us about some of the exciting advances and less common mutations. Great. All right. 
So you just heard a bit of an introduction to you know, this patient uh, having an EGFR exon 20 insertion. And as Dr. Lale mentioned, I think one of the most important takeaways from all of this is it's really not enough anymore to say my patient has an EGFR mutant non-small cell lung cancer. You really have to drill down on the type of, an, of mutation they have. The majority of patients will have these exon 19 deletions or L858R mutations. These are the, we call them the classical mutations, and, and we'll talk about those kind of in the second half of today. But for now, we want to focus on the exon 20 insertions, and these make up about 5 to 10% of all EGFR mutations in lung cancer. If you look at them as a unique kind of oncogene driver, they're actually about 2% of all non-small cell lung cancer, whether you look in the United States or in other countries like China. And this is a heterogeneous group of insertions. So these span exon 20. Um, there's a whole slew of these different, I think it's over 50 now, of these different exon 20 insertions that have been described. Um, one key point is that you know they, they can be tricky to pick up on NGS reports. So if you're not sure of what your NGS report is telling you, I think it really is critical to go back to the molecular pathologist and ask for clarity um, to be sure. You know, sometimes even I've had colleagues at my own institution who say, I don't know, you know, what is this D770 and 771 insertion? Where does that fall? Is it exon 20? But so it's it's a confusing space, and it's always okay to ask for help if it's not clear from the report. So there's now two approved therapies, and that's really what we'll, we'll focus on first. Um, four patients with EGFR exon 20 insertions. Both of these agents have accelerated FDA approval in the United States. And again, one important point is that both of these are approved in the post-chemotherapy setting. So generally, for a newly diagnosed patient, you cannot reach for these first line yet pending studies like Papillon, which Dr. Shu mentioned. Um, the nice thing is they have different mechanisms of action. So we have two drugs um, to, to choose from and hopefully use in sequence. On the left, you can see the mechanism of action for amivantamab. This is a dual bispecific antibody targeting EGFR and MET, um, with, which binds to the extracellular portion of EGFR here. On the right, you have mobocertinib, which is a small molecule EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor. This compound was chemically optimized for mosimertinib to be more selective for exon 20 mutants. So let's look at the data for these. Uh, so this is the data for mobocertinib. This was the, the data that led to the approval at a dose of 160 milligrams daily. Again, this is an accelerated approval based on single-arm data from the phase 1-2 study. And the, the cohort here was 114 patients, all of whom had had prior platinum-based chemotherapy. And you can see the waterfall plot on the right and the efficacy results in the table. Their confirmed response rate here is 28% by blinded review or 35% by in investigator review. It was fairly durable responses when they do occur. Median duration of response was 17.5 months, but overall median progression-free survival was about seven months. I, one thing that's important with both of these drugs is to be aware of their safety profile, and you can see that kind of summarized here. With mobocertinib, you know, the thing to be aware of are GI toxicities, in particular diarrhea, which can be seen in 90% of patients looking at any grade, and 20% of patients having grade 3 or higher diarrhea. I think this is really critical when treating patients with mobocertinib to be aware of. The median onset is usually around five to seven days after starting, so you really have to watch these patients clo closely when you start treatment and um, monitor closely for the onset of diarrhea. This can often be managed with appropriate antidiarrheal management, sometimes with dose reduction, but again, the key thing is to, to know about it and to, to uh, treat those patients appropriately. We also see rash in about 45% of these patients, some paronychia, and then in rare cases, you can also see QTC prolongation. So important to be aware of that. Um, so, but nevertheless, I think with all of this, you know, mobocertinib, we're not seeing response rates at the levels that we see with osimertinib and the classic mutations, but this drug does certainly have activity.
If we look at imivantamab, again, this is the EGFR and met by specific antibody. Here again, we have an accelerated approval based on single-arm data from uh, the original phase 1-2 study. This was an 81-patient cohort, all with prior platinum chemotherapy. Here we saw a response rate of 40%, duration of response of 11.1 months, and median progression-free survival of 8.3 months. With amivantamab, I think the two things to be most aware of are the fact that patients can have infusion-related reactions. This is most common with the first infusion, and there are guidelines in the package insert for uh, glucocorticoid pre-medications and split dosing over cycle one, day one and day two to mitigate this. But you really have to counsel patients that this is a common occurrence and usually is not something that prevents them from being able to be rechallenged and treated down the road. And then also dermatologic toxicities. Rash, 86% any grade, although only 4% grade 3 or higher, paronychia, and then rarely some met-related toxicities like hypoalbuminemia and edema. Uh, there are several novel agents that I think are important to be aware of that are in development, you know, really with the goal of both improving the efficacy of exon 20 inhibitors, but also, maybe more importantly, improving on the safety profile of the drugs that we have available now. And I'll highlight just two of them. The first is CLN081, also known as TAS6417. This is also an oral EGFR inhibitor, which is currently in phase one testing. Um, you can see data that Dr. Yu presented at ASCO this year showing that while this drug is still in dose escalation, a response response rate of 39% across dose levels, median duration of response of 10 months. And here you can see that um, the most common toxicity was rash, seen in 80% of patients, but only 1% grade 3 or higher rash, and diarrhea was only seen in 30% of patients. We also have uh, the compound from Dizel Therapeutics called Sunvozertinib. And I will admit, actually, I think that we saw some, um, this slide may already be slightly out of date. We, I think we saw updated data presented even yesterday at this meeting um, with Sunvozertinib. You know, this is another oral uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor. This data set showed a response rate of 37.5% across all the dose levels tested. But at 300 milligrams daily, which I believe is the recommended phase two dose of this agent, Dr. Bozanova p- p- um, presented some pooled data from several ongoing studies showing a response rate that was more in the 50% range. Um, And again, here we see that this is not yet a home run, I would say, in terms of of a safety profile, but we are starting to see the the rates of toxicities maybe tick down over time. If we focus on that 300 milligram dose, we see 57% of patients having diarrhea and 45% having rash. So again, still room for improvement, but starting to see some steps in the right direction. this is a busy table, but really meant more for your reference to kind of show the, the activity and the key toxicities of the agents that are approved and, and in development. I think the other thing I'll just highlight here, in addition to the data that I already showed you, is you know osimertinib. So one of the choices on the, on the question was, should we be using osimertinib for these patients? And I would say right now the answer is probably no, unless in the setting of a clinical trial. And even then, you know, there's small studies, two small studies, one from um, the cooperative group system here in the U.S. and one from Europe, showing a response rate in the mid-20s with osimertinib. Um, and again, you know, this was with high-dose osimertinib, uh, um, 160 milligrams, so we do see some toxicity, 76% diarrhea. So I think uh, osimertinib, I would say, has modest activity, and as we see these new agents coming out, I think, you know, we're reaching for that less and less. Um, so we're going to move on to another case, uh, kind of shifting gears to talk about classic EGFR mutations, a 52-year-old woman who presents with dyspnea. She's found to have a pleural effusion. Uh, pleural fluid cytology is positive for adenocarcinoma, and she has multiple bilateral pulmonary nodules on PET scan. 
Her biomarker testing reveals a classic EGFR mutation, L858RX on 21 mutation. Her PDL1 is low and she has a good performance status. So, Natasha, do you have uh, enthusiasm for these combinations? Are you using them in your practice? So no, so I'm, I'm a conformist. I vote with the majority. We use osimertinib first line as well for classic sensitizing mutations. We did participate in uh, Flora 2, so it'll be very interesting to see, you know, whether that, and I think you're going to talk a bit yeah. more about that sort of whole scale, give some chemo and TKI to everyone is really better than a more thoughtful approach. Because I mean, the beauty of osimertinib is, you know, minimal toxicity, great outcomes for patients. Um, be really great to keep that going as long as possible. Yeah. How about you, Kathy? Yeah, I mean, I think I also am voting with the majority, osimertinib, um, definitely. But um, we at Columbia do have open one of the phase two VEGF trials. Um, so Shuning Lee has a phase two with um, OC plus or minus ramucirumab. Um, so I do offer that to patients who have good performance status and, you know, are willing to come in every three weeks for an additional infusion. And it's a hard sell because if you could take a pill versus if you could, you know, come in and get infusion every few weeks, um, sometimes they do not want the trial. So I, I do offer both though. I think all great points, but I think it emphasizes the point that as we think about combinations, the bar is set really high when you're starting from an oral drug that's so well tolerated that gives patients, you know, for the majority of patients, such a good quality of life on a day-to-day basis. All right, so let's look at the common mutations and first-line therapy. I want to make sure we leave enough time to talk about acquired resistance, because I think that's often a question that people ask. But first, let's talk about first line. So we have you know, different drugs that are approved in the United States for uh, EGFR inhibitors. And really here, we're going to focus on the bottom part of this figure. I would say we're using less and less of the first and second generation EGFR inhibitors now in 2022. As you already heard about, we're using primarily osimertinib, although we'll go through some of the data in combination with VEGF inhibitors and erlotinib and ramucirumab is an approved regimen in the United States based on the results of the relay trial. So why osimertinib? That was, I think, pretty well demonstrated in the FLORA study. This was a phase three study that compared osimertinib to erlotinib and gefitinib for newly diagnosed patients. And we clearly saw, as you can see here, that um, osimertinib improved both progression-free survival with a median PFS of 19 months and overall survival with a median OS of 39 months compared to the comparator EGFR-TKIs. And this really led to osimertinib being our preferred first-line therapy. But we do have some combination treatment strategies, again, always trying to improve upon our current standards of care. Um, Osimertinib plus VEGF inhibitors, osimertinib plus chemotherapy. And then we won't talk about today, but always important to keep in mind the option of osimertinib with locally ablative therapy, such as radiation or surgery, which is certainly something that I will sometimes consider. Um, So there's a lot of data with EGFR inhibitors in combination with various anti-VEGF therapies. Uh, You can see in this table, the first two um, studies were done in Japan. These were studies looking at erlotinib and bevacizumab. And intriguingly, they showed improvements in progression-free survival, pretty meaningful improvements when you look at the numbers there, um, when VEGF inhibitors were added. And I think this generated a lot of enthusiasm about these combinations. Unfortunately, with longer follow-up, the overall survival analyses of these studies were negative. But there were still a lot of questions. You know, erlotinib is not the, our preferred TKI of choice. Um, these were studies done only in Japan. Can we extrapolate these results to other places? We also had the relay study, which looked at erlotinib in combination with ramucirumab and was also a positive study with a primary endpoint of progression-free survival. You can see it, PFS was improved from 12 to 19 months with the combination of erlotinib plus ramucirumab. From that study, we do not yet have the overall survival analyses. 
I will highlight that this year, maybe last year, we saw the results of a phase two study from Japan looking at osimertinib with or without bevacizumab. Um, we did see a numerical improvement with the combination with a PFS of 22 months versus 20, but that did not reach the threshold for st um, statistical significance. However, I think there's still a lot of interest, as, as you alluded to, Kathy. Um, there are several ongoing studies. One is a cooperative group study looking at osimertinib with or without bevacizumab. And then this study, which may be the one that you have open at Columbia, which is the Ramos study looking at newly diagnosed patients, again, randomizing to osimertinib uh, plus remiserumab versus osimertinib alone with a primary endpoint of PFS. So I think this is still an exciting area, and we look forward to the results of these studies. We also have good data for the combination of TKIs with concurrent chemotherapy. There were two independent studies, one done in Japan and one done in India, both with gefitinib, looking at the addition of platinum-based chemotherapy to a first-generation TKI, and both intriguingly showed improvements in both progression-free and overall survival in these studies. That, again, generated a lot of enthusiasm, but these results came out when we were already using osimertinib as our preferred agent in the U.S., and so we kind of said, hard to know what to do with that data when we're comparing to osimertinib and not gefitinib as kind of our the control arm in the, in the U.S. So that led to the development of the FLORA-2 study, just to show you the design. So this is looking at newly diagnosed patients, osimertinib plus platinum-based chemotherapy, four cycles of platinum pemetrexid, and then pemetrexid maintenance, or osimertinib alone, and I think we're all eagerly awaiting the results from that. I know, Natasha, you said you participated. One thing I wanted to mention is knowing that this, this you know, threshold for kind of the, the safety of these agents is, is I think, or uh, the tolerability and the quality of life with these agents is going to have to be high given kind of the good quality of life that we're starting from. Can we use a more tailored approach? Do we have to give all patients chemotherapy, even if these studies are positive? Or can we use some sort of biomarker to, detect, to, to figure out which population really needs it? And so this is a study that Helen IU is running and we're participating in. I think is really a, an exciting study design. This is looking at patients with newly diagnosed disease. They start on osimertinib. And after three weeks of osimertinib, they have a plasma sample sent for C circulating tumor DNA analysis. And the patients who still have detectable ctDNA now, taking a step back, we know that lack of plasma clearance of ctDNA has always been a negative prognostic indicator. We know that those patients tend not to do as well with EGFR inhibitors, with really any kind of th treatments that we use. Can we look at that population as kind of a high-risk population and randomize just that group, those patients with detectable DNA, to receive chemotherapy or osimertinib? And I think in the future, this may be the way to really be able to tell a patient, listen, I know you don't want chemotherapy. However, you have this kind of high-risk feature about your cancer. We're worried you may not do as well. And for that patient, you know, really adding something like chemotherapy may be of benefit. Yep. So I hope that we'll see more results from this study in the coming years. So, um, Kathy, maybe I'll start with you this time. What's your approach to a patient like this in the clinic? I'm also voting with the audience. Um, I would repeat a biopsy um, with NGS, and, and I'll talk about in my section maybe, you know, some reasons why that would be important. But, you know, also from a practical standpoint, sometimes you just can't do it. <laughs> um, so I would also understand if you started chemotherapy um, and... I trained at MSK where a lot of us did use BEV, so I, I do often use BEV, and I think BEV and EGFR, uh, there is that um, crosstalk, so I think that's also a valid option. Um, but I think, you know, theoretically, I like the first choice the most. Excellent. 
Natasha, how about you? Thanks. So, you know, in Canada, the standard remains switching to chemotherapy, but I think we all do repeat biopsies because we really know, you know, our justification is could this have transformed a small cell or high-grade neuroendocrine, therefore you change the treatment. But really, you know, we're all very interested in, in the molecular profiling and this new approach. And so at our center, we are doing NGS and we're trying to build that business case for showing why it helps these patients. And just very briefly, you mentioned switching to chemotherapy. I think this question also gets at this interesting point about what do you think is the role of osimertinib when when a patient is transitioning to chemotherapy? Do you ever continue it or do you just switch? So I think it's a great question. So the Canadian answer is we just switch. However, um, you know, it's a real challenge for us. It's funding. If the patient is able to continue, patients want to. Um, you know, is this truly like the randomized trial that we did where we randomized patients to gefitinib um, plus chemo or chemo alone and the chemo alone arm did better? I don't think so, but we don't know. And there is actually a randomized trial that's ongoing looking at that. So I think that'll be very important and very helpful, right? If they don't need it, we shouldn't give it. Um, But I think we all have that sneaking suspicion that it's still very important. Absolutely. Kathy, give us the American perspective. The American perspective. um, I will occasionally continue the osimertin, and mostly if patients have CNS disease, and I'm, you know, kind of worried about that. I uh, will continue the osimertinib and add in the chemotherapy. And I'd say for the most part, it's pretty well tolerated. The problem is sometimes getting the osimertinib, but um, a lot of times the, the drug companies will send us, um, you know, like free or discounted drug, and so the patients are able to continue it. Yeah, I, I w- would echo all of those points. You know, I, I think we do have this COMPEL trial, the randomized study, which I think will give us really important data here. The patients where I feel most strongly about continuing osimertinib or monitoring their CNS very closely if I stop is patients who maybe had brain mets when they were diagnosed, went on to osimertinib and had a response, and then might have systemic progression, but their brain remains controlled on osimertinib. That does sometimes come up, and I think if you can't continue OC for those patients, really important to watch the brain very closely as they come off, because sometimes you can can see those CNS mets become more active. Yep. All right. With that, I think I'm going to pass it on to Kathy for to All take right. us through targeted therapy resistance. Just kind of an overview, right, of everything that we've just been talking about. You have the patient on first line osimertinib, then there's suspected disease progression. You scan them, and there are often two ways you can look at it. One is that there's just one lesion that's growing, right? And um, I think that considering some sort of local treatment is, is very valid for these patients. Um, it tends to be radi- uh, radiation, but I've also had patients you know, undergo like a wedge resection. They were in great performance status, wedge resection, and they've done very well afterwards, continuing them on the osimertinib. The other, the right side there, though, is if they have you know, widespread progression. And there we're really talking about we have to figure out what's going on. There's some sort of resistance mechanism, and can we figure out what that is Um, and do that right side of the branch and switch them to some other systemic therapy. And I'm going to just talk about some of these various uh, trials that are going on looking at resistance after osimertinib. So um, there are different ways that we can become resistant to osimertinib uh, or in general to any tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Mutations in the drug target um, that impact drug binding, bypass signaling, um, mutations in downstream effectors, you can see oncogene amplification or rearrangements, um, and really importantly, like Dr. Lyle mentioned, state transformation, which is you know, probably one of the main reasons you want to biopsy, because sometimes you have small cell or squamous cell transformation, and that you don't know without seeing a repeat biopsy, and that really necessitates a change in treatment, change in uh, chemotherapy. 
So this slide is um, based on acquired resistance from patients who had undergone first or second generation TKI. So it's, it's a bit of an old slide, but I just left it in there just for you to see that back in the day, um, the most common resistance mutation was T790M. And on the right is the waterfall plot from Aura 3, um, looking at osimertinib in patients with T790M positive disease. And you can see that it's very effective. But you know, now we're all giving osimertinib in the first line. So what we've noticed is that the resistance pattern has changed, right? So now we're looking at uh, many different uh, mutations, including C797X, we see MET amplification. I'm going to show you a slide um, in a few seconds presented by Dr. Piotrowska at ESMO. Um, but we also see things like squamous cell transformation still. We still see small cell transformation. Um, and, and then besides those, you know, we're looking at, we kind of separate things into an on-target resistance and also bypass pathway activation. And it's important for us to know all these things because this can help us target. So this is similar to what I was saying before, but single versus multiple sites target the targetable, right? So either we switch drugs or we add a second drug or like uh, Zosha was just saying, maybe add in chemotherapy. And if no targetable mechanism exists, well, then are there other new drugs coming down the pipeline that can help us with this? Or tried and true chemotherapy. And I do want to mention that chemotherapy is always an option. And I, I do always tell my patients that you should expect to get chemotherapy someday because it's a great option and it's often very tolerable. So these, these are some slides uh, from Dr. Piotrowska, who um, this is uh, the, on the left is a patient who acquired a RET fusion. And on the right, our patients um, acquired ALK fusions. And you can see by adding in the appropriate drug, um, the patients can have a very nice response. So here we added in a RET inhibitor, see, and the disease um, responded very nicely. And similarly here with adding crizotinib, or right here adding an electinib. Right? So very impressive and something that you wouldn't have known without getting that biopsy. For targeting C797S, there's still um, limited data for this, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about it, but we do have fourth generation EGFR TKIs with some activity against C797S entering the clinic, including Blue 945. Um, and I'm going to talk a little bit about some other agents um, like amivantamab and patritamab deruxtecan, which may also have activity in this kind of setting. So this was a trial that Dr. Piotrowska just presented at ESMO um, a few weeks ago, and um, it was a prospective trial looking at patients with EGFR mutations. They had to get paired biopsies. So they had a biopsy prior to treatment start, and then um, they collected ctDNA longitudinally, and after progression, they had to get another biopsy. And we, and we looked at results of this. Um, and you can see the major alterations that they found um, at progression and at acquired resistance were uh, MET amplification. So we saw that in the acquired resistance biopsy in 17% of the patients and also EGFR C797S. So this is kind of confirming what we were just seeing before. Um, but also I think a really interesting part was that even though this was a trial, even though we had patients who were kind of good performance status could go on the trial, um, we told them they had to get these paired biopsies. Even then, the um, paired biopsies we could only get in about 39% of patients. Yeah, it was really, I think, quite surprising to all of us involved. You yeah. know, these were patients who were highly motivated, and still it was sometimes technically challenging or anatomically challenging. Yeah, and I would say that it's definitely the case in my clinical practice 
where I want to theoretically biopsy everyone, but oftentimes it's just not possible to do so. Um, but again, this also confirmed that metamplication is important, uh, metamplification, overexpression, and EGFR-797S. So to talk a little bit more about that, um, I'm just going to mention a few kind of important trials. I'm not going to go into detail on all of them, uh, but you can kind of go back later and, and look through some of these uh, trials in detail. But one of them is ORCHARD, which is a biomarker-directed study in patients who have progressed on first-line osimertinib. So after they progress on osimertinib, they get a biopsy, and depending on what that alteration shows, they are slotted into a particular basket. The one that I was focusing on is the one with met alterations. So that was um, an arm where they received osimertinib and savolitinib. And the um, results from this basket had been presented um, by Helena Yu, and the response rate was 41%. It's a small N, but a very encouraging signal. And so then um, we were also looking at this trial, Savannah, which then looked at osimertinib and savolitinib in these EGFR-mutated MET-amplified non-small cell lung cancer after they had progressed on osimertinib. And um, you can see that here, this is the efficacy outcomes. And I just want to, you know, there are a lot of numbers on here. Let's just focus here maybe on response rate. And you can see that there are three different um, groups here. One is kind of you know, moderate expression, IHC 50 plus or FISH 5 plus. And then this one in yellow is high, and then here in red is low. And you can see that the response rates um, are in the 30s for the IHC 50 plus, but all the way up to you know, almost 50% here with the high MET amplification and or expression. And quite low if you didn't have any of that. So it really goes to show you that this biomarker is, I think, a very important one for us to, to evaluate. Um, this was their waterfall plot um, in the patients with IHC 90 plus, right? So this was very impressive, but you had to have that biomarker. And then I just wanted to briefly mention this trial, which was also just presented in site two, also looking at patients who had progressed after first-line osimertinib, but using tapotinib, which is a drug that's approved in our MET-exon 14 skipping mutation patients. And um, these patients were on tapotinib plus osimertinib after progression on first-line osimertinib, um, and they had to have MET amplification, also confirmed centrally. And you could see the res uh, response rate was also very good, 54.5%. Um, and so very impressive numbers. Um, and so I think that what are we getting from this? I think we're seeing that MET amplification is an important biomarker. We have to figure out what degree, you know, is the most kind of relevant cutoff, but it's definitely something to look at. Okay, so what about um, if we don't have MET-based resistance. So this is a slide to show you um, a, a drug called amivantamab, which Dr. Piotrowska had discussed earlier. Um, it's an EGFR MET bispecific antibody, so it targets both EGFR and MET. And um, this was in combination with lizertinib. This was in the beginning of a, a trial, uh, the chrysalis trial, and it was a, these were kind of small numbers, and um, they looked at patients who had progressed on first-line osimertinib received both amivantamab and lizertinib together. And we could see that in patients who had a MET-based resistance or an EGFR-based resistance, the response rate was 47%. 
So you say, okay, well, that's good. Does that mean that that's a biomarker for amibantamab? Well, then they also looked at patients without an EGFR or MET based resistance, and you can see that even though the response rate is um, lower at 29%, there's still significant activity. So I think an important takeaway from this is that we don't really fully understand when we can and can't use amibantamab necessarily yet, and that they're, um, you know, just kind of pigeonholing it to MET based resistance alone is not the whole story. So then after that trial, um, then uh, we opened Chrysalis 2, which is looking at amivantamab plus lizertinib, so the same um, uh, amivantamab plus lizertinib in patients now that had progressed on both osimertinib and platinum-based chemotherapy. And this was also um, quite impressive in that the response rate was very good. So these were in patients who really don't have other options now. They've, you know progressed on osimertinib, they've progressed on chemotherapy, and the response rate was still quite good with a median duration of response of 9.6 months. And I would say um, also that the, the duration of response was um, good, and really I've had some patients on trial who had remained on trial for, for quite a long time. So the clinical benefit rate here is 57%. Um, so this is another really exciting option, I think, for patients. And this was, again... Uh, independent of any biomarker selection, and a really nice kind of chemotherapy-free option that we could offer patients. This is the waterfall plot just showing you um, the response rates kind of in the 20-something all the way up to 30-something percent. And you can see that patients had good responses, whether they were, you know, after post-first-line OC or even if they were heavily pretreated. And some patients had, you know, seven or eight lines of prior treatment. So... It's nice to see. Okay, what about something completely different? Patritumab deruxacan is a HER3, um, a novel anti-HER3 drug antibody conjugate. And HER3 is in itself not an oncoprotein, but it can dimerize with other receptor tyrosine kinases leading to inappropriate uh, signaling, um, inappropriate apoptosis. And so... This is, um, HER3 is often expressed on non-small cell lung cancer. Um, this drug is a really interesting drug. It combines patritumab, which is an IgG, fully humanized anti-HER3 antibody, via a proprietary drug linker to a payload, which is a topoisomerase-derived um, payload. So they looked at this drug, patritumab deruxacan, in patients um, who had progressed on osimertinib, Um, They could have had other lines of therapy in between. And you can see here that the response rate was really impressive. It was 39% with a median duration of response of 6.9 months and a median PFS of 8.2 months. And I think importantly, you can see that this drug also showed activity in kind of a surprising, you know, array of activating EGFR mutations and activating um, acquired resistance. So... This drug also, there's not one clear type of patient who would benefit, but um, I think the takeaway from both amivantamab and patritumab deruxtecan is that we are coming up with really novel drugs, and these are kind of really interesting new drugs with different mechanisms of action and uh, are really quite effective, and so we need to just learn a little bit more about them. 
And so this is a slide I took from Helena Yu. She just presented this um, at ESMO this past year, and I thought it was a really nice summary of how maybe to think about it, because it is overwhelming. There are so many things that, you know, so many drugs and so many trials and, and acronyms. But if we think about it, if you get that biopsy and you can see that there's an on-target resistance, right? So something like C797S, um, which we know from Zosha that it's maybe about 15% of patients fourth-generation TKI, so maybe one of these new TKIs. Um, and if we are looking at off-target mechanisms, so things like your MET amplification, your ALK fusion, your RET, right? We, tr we discussed um, adding in a MET inhibitor, whether it's tapotinib, whether it's sevalitinib. Um, if there's an ALK, we, I showed you a picture of patients who you know, responded very nicely with uh, electinib. What about off-target with no, you know, no drug yet? Well, other clinical trials, um, and these ones that, such as the ones I just mentioned with amivantamab and lazertinib or uh, patritimab deruxacan, or, you know, standard chemotherapy, which I will still put out there is, is a valid and good option. What if um, there's just complete change in the lineage? So now it looks like squamous cell carcinoma or small cell carcinoma. Um, these are patients in which I will switch their chemotherapy to be a small cell regimen, for example. Um, and then if you get the NGS and there's, you know, you just have no idea, uh, then again, things like standard chemotherapy or these new interesting drugs like amivantamab or uh, patritimab deruxacan, I think, are reasonable options. So I think that's it for my Great. part of it. Thank you both so much. That was great. We do have a lot of questions from the audience. We'll also welcome any from the floor um, as well as, uh, as for people online to please submit questions. I'm going to backtrack. I'm going to start asking you ladies about Exxon 20 targeted agents. How do we sequence? What do we use first? What should we be thinking of? All excellent questions. Not all questions that we have answers to yet, but I hope they're coming. You know, I think if we just think through the approved agents, we have two approved drugs, two different mechanisms of action, a TKI and an IV and a um, bispecific antibody targeting EGFR and MET. I would say with relatively comparable efficacy, slight differences, and, and different safety profiles. In that situation, you know, when your patient's progressing on chemotherapy, I discuss both. There are patient factors that may go into the decision. Some may prefer to take an oral agent and don't mind the GI toxicity so much. Some may say, you know, GI toxicities to me are something I really want to avoid, and I don't mind coming to clinic. I don't live so far. You know, all things being equal, I think both are reasonable options. Um, and I think a key question is going to be, can we sequence them? At the end of the day, I want my patients to have access to both and, and maybe to these newer agents. Um, and, and I think we don't have data yet about how these work in sequence, but we certainly hope that they would based on their different mechanisms mm -hmm. of action. Thank you. Dr. Shu? Yep. It's a, it's a tough question being up here. Um, I will say <laughs> I tend, I have the same discussions with, with my patients after chemo. Um, I tend to put more patients on amivantamab, just um, given the higher response rate in the trials. But again, I mean, I have the, the same discussion. Amivantamab is a lot more work for the patient. Um, they're coming in for IV infusions every week in the beginning and then every other week. And, and every patient's always like, well, when can I stop coming in for that every other week infusion? I'm like, no, no, <laughs> you got to keep coming in. Um, and so I think that if they don't like that idea, then I'll, I'll give them the mobocertinib. Um, we, we start them on mobocertinib. But the other thing to kind of note for all of you is that 
even though you see things like grade 2 rash or grade 2 diarrhea, I mean, like, some of these patients have very significant rash, and grade 2, even though we just kind of say grade 2, like, it's, it can be very significant for them. And I think same for diarrhea. It can be a, a, a very big deal. And my colleagues say it's very hard to watch a movie with grade 2 diarrhea. Yes. <laughs> Um, so in, in Toronto, I mean, I think we prioritize the amivantamab because it's more intense, and so you want patients to do it while they're well enough. Um, but we've actually had a lot of success with, with sequencing, and, and a lot of my patients have subsequently responded to mobocertinib. So, you know, I, I think we're, and we're certainly looking forward, you know, trials, trials, trials is also the mantra, so that's great. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you both about osimertinib resistance. We've got a couple of questions about this, and then sort of immunotherapy across the whole field. So... When you have a patient with OC resistance, what's your preferred tissue biopsy, plasma testing, both? And then what do you do if you see conflicting results? So maybe I'll start with yeah. Dr. Shu first. So I tend to always start with a liquid, um, mostly because here in the U.S. I seem to get it covered pretty easily <laughs> um, because it's easy and you know, patients just really don't want to do biopsies. Um, but I will also at the same time kind of simultaneously set up expectations for a tissue biopsy. Um, and it's, it's, I really go with tissue as the gold standard. So I think it's hard if they, they show different things, but um, in general, I will go with the tissue as the gold standard and then from there kind of look for, for whatever trials or if they have histologic transformation. Like, I, th I think having that tissue is, is still quite important. Yeah, you know, I agree. I think it, it's different in the newly diagnosed patient where you're just trying to get molecular information yeah. fast and will often send both. In the acquired resistance setting, I think based on the relatively high rates of histologic transformations, tissue is really key here if you yeah. can get it. So I will start with tissue. I think that can, you know, if we can get it, it can give you good information. I think the plasma, frankly, can be confusing here. And there's not so much of a, oh, if I see this result in plasma, it's going to obviate the need for the tissue biopsy. Yeah. Because we know that sometimes, you know, the findings can be heterogeneous and so the, my main take home would be try to get the tissue if you can and only rely on plasma recognizing its limitations if that's not possible yeah great i agree i mean i'll say that for all the plasmas that i've drawn at you know acquired resistance they have not been particularly yeah. helpful although i still do it sometimes yeah. <laughs> no, I, I agree i think tissue's the the standard and, and you can see conflicting results and i think you try and work your way towards the most actionable. If you have progression on OC and you have an emergent, I don't know, I, I don't want to use retfusion, but maybe we should use, or let's say somebody suddenly has Medexon 14 skip mutant clones emerging. Should you switch? Should you add? What's your approach? And we talked about this with chemotherapy already, but what about with other things such as, you know, the emergent retfusion or BRAF E600E? So I would say actually here there was a really intriguing aspect to that Insight 2 trial, which was a study with Tapotnib and Osimertinib that was just presented at ESMO that I thought was really sobering and, and answers this question. So in that study, they looked at the combination of Tapotnib and Osimertinib for MET-positive, MET-amplified, or MET-overexpressing patients, but they also had a small arm of patients who got Tapotnib alone without Osimertinib. And the response rate, if I remember the number correctly, was 8%, or certainly less than 10%. And I think this really highlights, we've seen this in the past in preclinical models, that these 
cells are still dependent on the EGFR pathway, so it is really important if you're adding another targeted therapy, if you're adding tapotinib, electinib, one of the RET inhibitors, um, to really keep the EGFR inhibitor alone, because if you just block that pathway but you leave the EGFR pathway uninhibited, I think that, can, that is less clinically effective. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I also just continue for, for exactly the same reason. Hi, Carolyn Presley, uh, Ohio State University. Um, I'm a thoracic oncologist and geriatric oncologist, so I just had this patient, had a RET fusion, so I added selpercatinib, was progressing on first-line osimertinib. Um, she was great. She would have qualified for any clinical trial. We don't actually have the Orchard 2 platform trial open, and so I think that would have been a great place for this patient to be. But um, I was able to get both drugs, but then she came in and had gained, um, within the first three weeks of starting, had gained 20 pounds of fluid. Her sodium was 117. So I had to admit her for IV diuresis for hypervolemic hyponatremia. And so now I'm like, well, now what do I do, right? If, so both mutations were still present. Do I try dose reducing both? Do I dose reduce one? Do I switch to the selpercatinib alone? Because I think the, the tricky part is how do you not hurt people, right, with toxicity? Um, and so I, I love the science, it makes a lot of sense, but, but now what? What would you do? And she, brain is, um, has never been an issue, so. We're starting with you, doctor. Oh, that's a tough question. I mean, certainly clinically a very tough question. I would say those sound like pretty significant um, adverse events. So I, I would probably be wary to rechallenge with selpercatinib um, again. I might consider, you know, some dose-reduced pelcetinib, knowing that their safety profiles are a little bit different. But also I might think about for that patient if she recovers, maybe it's time to switch gears and try something like chemotherapy, depending on her functional status or a different approach. But that's a really tough situation. And these combinations are not easy. I think we have to be very careful and share these experiences because right now we're really relying on case reports. Mm -hmm. It's easy for us to stand up here and say, you know, add a RET inhibitor and add an ELK inhibitor, but our experience with those is very limited. And so I think these are really important anecdotes to share. Yeah. Great. Thanks. No, I agree. I think dose reduction and then switching. We've got a question at the back and we'll direct it to Dr. Shu. Yes. Uh, we use Tempers for um, NGS platform for our cancer patient. Uh, one of the reports they put is overexpression, this RNA overexpression uh, profile. So once in a while, I see like MET overexpression. Does that equal to MET amplification? So it's a good question. I mean, people, it's, it's very confusing. So overexpression, we tend to be talking about the IHC, and then the amplification, we tend to be talking about the fish, but they... So you can see, like, every trial kind of has a different, you know, cutoff for what they consider positive. Um, and some trials look at, you know, gene copy number. Um, so the short answer is that it's different, but the long answer is that I don't think we really have any idea of what constitutes the right cutoff yet. Although I, I suspect we're getting higher with every presentation. I mean, that 90% yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, we're in more than 10 copies, I yeah. thought was very But compelling. I guess, like, what do we do with the patient who's seven? Like, what, yeah. is, what do we do? You know, like, I think 
I think the question is, where do we find that right sweet spot between a high enough cutoff to really get the good efficacy, but still a broad enough cutoff that you're capturing the exactly. patients who are going to benefit? Yeah. And then the, I think to your point, you know, we're talking about protein overexpression or NGS amplification, but what about these other methods like RNA, you know, based assays and, and other new, in, in our ELIOS presentation, we looked at mass spectrometry and proteomics. I think all of these are different ways of getting at this question, and ultimately we're going to have to figure out what is the gold standard and really the biomarker that's helpful. Yeah. And then also how you stream, right? So TKI combinations, maybe it's copy number, but maybe for things like gamavantamab or yeah. um, some of the other ADCs targeting MET, it's a lower, a lower cutoff. Yes. So, so a great questions. Thank you so much to everyone for coming out so early in the morning and to everyone online. I want to thank our amazing faculty, our sponsors, and the Peerview team. And we prescribe more coffee for all of you. Thank you so much. <laughs> this activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash rjv860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lilly, and Takeda Pharmaceuticals USA Incorporated.